Hi everyone and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. I started this podcast for a very simple reason. You can find podcasts on pretty much any topic, but I wasn't aware of any that were focused on public service leaders. So rather than wait for somebody else to do it, I decided to give it a try. I wanted to give public service leaders a platform to tell their stories, to talk about the reforms and innovations they put in place, and to share lessons in leadership. I think this will be particularly interesting for current and future public service leaders, but a lot of the lessons are more broadly applicable. So I hope you enjoy it, and please remember to register on the website to never miss a future episode. This week I speak to Leslie Hager, who is the Executive Director of Children's Services at Sandwell Council. This conversation continues the theme of last week, and we hear from a public service leader who has been on the front line during the pandemic. Things to look out for include a really honest appraisal of what it's been like over the past months and how in Sandwell they have brought about very clear and effective partnership working between public sector agencies and that's indeed accelerated a trend that may have taken years into a few months. Particularly exciting is the discussion on the award-winning innovation that Sandwell have put in place to support new arrival children into the school system. We also talk about the importance of having strong community organisations in a local area and how that helps to increase an area's resilience. And finally, we'll all have heard on the news national politicians and regional politicians are arguing with each other, but actually Leslie gives a very good account of how public servants at a local level and a national level have tried to work effectively with each other and have tried to do the best for the people they serve. So let's hear from Leslie. Leslie, you're very welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. Um, I wonder if you could start just by telling people a little bit about who you are. Yeah, of course. So, um, so Leslie Hagger, I'm the Executive Director of Children's Services at Sandwell Council at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm a youth worker by profession, um, so I started out in the voluntary sector and then actually took up an Arts, uh, Arts Council-funded youth arts officer post in 1987 with Northamptonshire County Council, and I've worked in local government uh, since then, so for 33 years. So, so I've really sort of um, progressed my knowledge and expertise in children's services across a number of roles during that time. I've always been very um, keen to take any opportunities that have come up to, um, you know, pick up new roles and learn. Um, and also during that time, I've done a couple of secondments as well. Um, one in the DCSF when it was first established. Yep. Um, to work on the Every Child Matters commissioning framework, um, a secondment with GOEM as well as a children's services advisor. Um, but I've been a, a director of children's services for eight years now um, in three local authorities and, as I say, the current role in Sandwell, which I'm really enjoying. Very good. It's really interesting to have that central government experience as well, because one of the things I'm quite interested in is how central government links with local government and I think this this crisis has shown that it's not always quite as smooth as it should be but um, I, I think the more central government people who have experience of working locally and vice versa I think will only be a good thing so so that is a, a very interesting point. Um, so you, you've been leading uh, an absolutely critical service through this crisis and with all its complexities and 
what has that been like? Um, well, re really challenging. Um, you know, it's always difficult when you don't know what the future looks like um, and you, you don't know what the current situation even um, looks like sometimes and, and trying to have to find a way through that. Um, I mean, people that, that have worked with me in the past will know, you know, in the days when we had offices and we weren't just open plan, when we had wall space, I've, I've always had for, for years, decades, um, a John Shah quote on my wall. Um, and I probably won't get it right, but it's something like the future's um, not a place we're going to, but one we're creating. The paths yeah. are to be found but made and the activity of making them. Um, changes the maker and the destination. It's, it's something like that. I probably haven't yes. got it exactly right. You know, that's a really ground. That's a real grounding place for me because we didn't know where we were going. We had to create things as we went along. Um, the paths weren't already there. We had to create them. And you know, being um, open to learning as we go and accepting the fact you're not necessarily going to get everything absolutely right first time is really important to have the confidence to be able to accept those things but you know the biggest challenge is just making sure that 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 children are safe and well um establishing new systems for making sure that vulnerable children um continue to be to be safe and, and protected um i think that you know leading is a really interesting word as well you know having the the energy to lead, the um, the confidence to gather people around, to to get the best out of everyone, to to help the decision making, um, and and I think that you know being really agile, being able to be creative, um, has been really important. We've had to balance that up with these really tight risk assessments to make sure that we're documenting everything really carefully and that we're fully considering every potential risk. And, yeah. and a lot of those things have been risks that, you know, we haven't had to think about before. So so I think it's been a challenging time. Um, and I think um, in terms of our communications, being really clear and precise in our communications have been important during that time as well. So in terms of what it's been like, um, yeah, hard, really hard and um, exhausting and unrelenting. Um, but, you know, there's a bit about that as well that, that's a little bit energising. Um, and yeah. some of the things that we've been able to move forward probably would have taken us quite some time to to really develop and deliver. Um, but actually, yeah, I, I, we've moved I, a lot of things forward quickly. Yeah, yeah I, I've heard that from a number of people and I've read it a lot as well, that progress has been made at speed that, you know, three months that would have normally taken three years. Um, I wonder if I could just pick up on one thing. You, you were talking about there about being creative mm -hmm. and almost the need to, to I don't want to say take risks, but just, you know, be more inventive in how you delivered services because this was entirely new and particularly in ch children's services which can be uh, for obvious reasons quite risk averse. I'm interested just to hear a little bit more about how you've been able to bring some some creativity in, into that. Mm. Yeah so so I think that the, the important thing to emphasise is um, that that we never take risk with children's safety but sometimes when we're working together to try to find solutions you have to create space for people to say the unimaginable things um, and to think outside of the box that sounds like a cliche but you know to, to think of the unthinkable sometimes uh, and and by 
creating a space for those conversations, quite often you will find something that is a really great solution that you would never have got to if you hadn't made the space to have the risky conversation. And, you know, once then there's an idea for doing something differently, um, you know, working through um, how to implement that obviously has all of the really tight risk assessment judgments around it. But it, it's, it really is, I think, about creating that space to, to put a bit more creative energy into thinking about how to solve something, how to resolve yeah. something. Um, and this probably isn't, isn't a very good example, actually, I'm going to use. But I, I just think about, um, you know, outside of the children's social care process, in, in some of our education services processes, um, you know, the school admissions and school appeals process is always a really arduous bureaucratic process. And this year we moved straight onto a digital platform and parents were, were fine with it and they loved it. And actually it made it much easier for everyone. And, um, you know, we, we've now been able to radicalise the way that we manage those activities and that will be in place now forever. Yeah. You know, and of course we have to think about the fact that, you know, digital exclusion is a really important issue for a lot of people. So it can't be our only way. But trying to find solutions for that as well, again, is is really interesting. And you, you get a lot of, uh, uh, I think, really creative ideas about how to manage that yeah. in that space. And is this something that you hope to uh, sustain once the crisis passes? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and particularly using that that digital platform for things. We've um, we've been really fortunate um, in Sandwell. Um, we, we still have a youth service um, and our youth service has continued to operate right the way through the pandemic, um, through detached youth work and outreach work. And it's been a really great way to um, be in contact with young people. But what we've also done is created an online digital um, set of, sort of youth club offers to young people so that we can still engage and they can still engage. And again, that's really exciting. That will stay in place. So some really, really creative, again, ways of engaging with young people in a way that lots of young people are very, very comfortable with. Not all young people, but lots of young people. Could you give me a couple of examples of how the work of social care staff has changed over lockdown? What have the practical impacts been? So I think in terms of the practicalities, obviously, in a, a social work space, um, we've always been very good at risk assessments, but, but COVID risk assessments um, have, been, have been quite different. And the importance of COVID risk assessments prior to visits has been really important. So that has helped to determine the type of visit. So in terms of the way that that, that, that social work practice might have changed, you know, some of the practicalities are around, you know, maybe having meetings on the doorstep or in gardens, um, which ha- hasn't been so much of an issue when the weather's good, but a bit more challenging when, you know, it, it's raining or cold or dark or yeah. an issue when when you've got very small children as well, not really practical. And then I guess when when visits have taken place in families' homes, maintaining social distancing has been really hard, especially where families are living in cramped conditions. And then thinking about whether PPE needs to be used, whether social workers have got access to the PPE, have they been trained how to use it? All of that was really challenging in um, the early days of lockdown when we were still learning, you know, what, what PPE was actually and the right type of PPE to use in the right type of circumstance. And, you know, if you're working with 
um, children with disabilities that need you to use um, uh, uh, an aspirant PPE kit, how to use that, um, and just the issues around it were tricky in the beginning and how to get it to social workers safely. So lots of practical challenges around that. And then how you prepare children um, and families uh, to, to meet with you um, when, when you're all kitted up with your PPE it is, is again, an, a thing that's really need, needed to be thought about really carefully and continuing to be sensitive to the needs of children. You know, so to develop those trusted relationships and um, how to do that in a way where your visit might be very different um, than it has been in the past. And understanding as well that families might be scared of social workers bringing COVID into their homes, too. Yeah. So, so there are a lot, lots of practical issues around that. And I guess it goes without saying, but but it's important to say it that home visits can always be a danger for social workers. You know, it's often a really volatile environment. So as well as social workers sort of managing the usual risks, they've had to manage those potential risks to their own health um, and their concerns about the risks to the health of others. But I think because of the the commitment and dedication that, that you see from a social work workforce to the children they're supporting, that they're putting their sort of professional drive and integrity above their own personal concerns a lot of the time. So so there were practical issues around that, but but then I guess around, you know, working digitally as well. So, you know, following that risk assessment, thinking about doing virtual home visits, um, and the practicalities of that have very much been about, you know, have we got the right IT in place and can everyone use it well and are families going to be receptive to that? And actually, we found it's quite successful. Um, lot, lots of uh, social workers saying, look at this great bit of work that's happening, engaging with this family. Um, and I think that, you know, it will make us think about our future arrangements quite quite differently. Actually. Yeah. Uh, but, but I, you know, it, it will never replace the fact that, you know, social work's interpersonal. It, it would always need personal contact to make it the most effective it can be. Children need to be seen and they need to have a hug and they need to be able to sort of sit quietly sometimes in the same space as someone else with that trusted adult that they know is there for them. So I think, you know, a, a bit of a hybrid approach might be uh, a way of working in, in the future. There's been a lot of focus on the news around adult social care, but Many people have been warning about the challenge ahead for the children's services as we emerge from mm -hmm. the pandemic. And I was reading Jenny Coles, the president of the Association of Directors of Children's Services, was highlighting this, particularly around care, home placements, school mm -hmm. transport, special educational needs. Um, what, in your view, is the shape of that challenge that's coming up? I think it's really difficult to assess it. We did a lot of work in Sandwell um, with our partners around surge planning. So we were anticipating that as soon as all children were back at school in September, we would see this massive surge in demand for services, whether that was in the children's social care space or in our early health services or, or actually with, with health, you know, GPs, etc. And we haven't seen that yet. And, you know, there's been a lot of conversation nationally and, and we've had these conversations locally about hidden harm. And I think it's really going to take a long time for us to properly in, understand the, the impact of what's been happening for children in terms of their well-being over this period of time. It's going to take longer maybe for some children and people to disclose 
and for the adults around them to, to understand and, and and make referrals as well. So th- this isn't going to be something that we're going to really see uh, and in terms of impact, I, I think, uh, over the next few months. This is this is going to take years for us to, yeah. to really um, to see and understand. And that sort of impact of adverse childhood experience as well is going to be even more important, I think, to all professionals that, that work with vulnerable people. Uh, but I think the shape of the challenge is also, you know, it's a real societal challenge um, in terms of young people, young people's hope, their confidence in the future, in a brighter future. Um, the, the, the role of schools has been so important during this time, you know, their support for children and families beyond sort of curriculum delivery often goes unnoticed, but it's been even more important during this period than any other time. So I think the the shape of the challenge is, you know, it's a systems issue. It's it's across all local authority departments, but also all, all of the other agencies that, that we work with. And it's across children and adult services. And it's about uh, communities and, you know, that whole contextual safeguarding approach is going to be really necessary. But But clearly, you know, there will be an increase in demand at some point and, and yeah. how the system will manage that is, is going to be very challenging. So has the nature of the problems your social workers are dealing with changed as a result of COVID and lockdown and have any new new problems arisen? I think in the main what's happened is that the challenges that families experience have been exacerbated. So, um, you know, increased stress, um, which might come from living in confined spaces on top of each other um, or, or, or the opposite of that being more isolated. If, if you're on your own with, with maybe a young child, um, I think poverty, you know, people who've, who've lost their jobs um, or who are worrying about losing their jobs. And I think that that stress and poverty together, you know, has led to increased domestic abuse. Um, referrals, poor mental health um, in families and in children, and also physical health. You know, one of the conversations uh, we've had regularly with with you know our, our um, uh, primary uh, health colleagues has been that children may, might not have um, been taken for their immunisations, for example, or right. because children are, have been less active. You know, obesity may be increasing. So all of these things start to then collect together because you know yeah. if you're feeling great physically, then um, you're not likely to feel as good as you can um, in terms of your emotional well-being and mental health as well. And, and children and young people um, that we've spoken to through some of the impact work that we've done have told us that they're anxious about their health, the health of their families, their friends, um, and anxious about their own futures, you know, their education, uh, jobs, uh, whatever hopes or aspirations they might have had for the future, that they're really concerned about them. And I think when children have much more limited access to the professionals that are normally around them, teachers, youth workers and social workers, that they've got more limited opportunities, again, for those trusted relationships and conversations, you know, fewer chances to talk to someone about the things that are, are worrying them. So so I think I think on the whole, the, the, the issues that um, are usually experienced have been exacerbated, but also um, we've seen that issues are more complex than they may have been in the past. Right. Um, and because of the complexity, sometimes those issues might take longer to emerge um, or, or to be recognised or seen or or, um, or or for anything to be disclosed. And I mean, my concern is is actually that 
once life moves on beyond the pandemic um, and, and the trauma of it begins to emerge in young people. You know, by that stage, we might have, you know, quite happily have, have tried to forget that there's been this major impact on a, on a generation and whether that's an impact on mental health or physical health or whether it's about hidden harm that, that children are experiencing or whether it's about managing their grief um, or their lost hope. Um, all of those things, I think, are going to take a long time to emerge and they're going to be more complex. So I think, you know, for us to keep listening and learning and having the conversations, making the links between the impact of the pandemic and the way it manifests itself in, in children and people's lives is going to be really important. So we spot the signs early enough and, and provide the earliest help we can. And presumably to understand the nature and size of this challenge, you'll have to have very close relationships. You, you mentioned schools, mm. but uh, I'm guessing public health as well and, and other agencies just mm. to be able to piece together all of the all of the bits of information to enable you to understand exactly what's happening. And maybe now even more than ever that that's needed. Yeah, definitely. Piecing together the different parts of the jigsaw so that we can see the whole picture is going to, is going to be really important now more, more than ever before. Yeah. So Sandwell recently won uh, an MJ Innovation in Children's Services Award. So congratulations for that. Can you say a little bit more about what that innovation was and the impact it's had? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I'm so proud of this. And and it is a piece of work that started before I arrived in, in Sandwell. So, you know, I don't take the credit for it at all. But it, it's fantastic that, that Sandwell has been recognised um, for this work. So, you know, in a nutshell, back in 2015, schools were, were telling um, the local authority that lots of new arrival children were, were going into schools um, not knowing very much about the education system and um Schools didn't know very much about the, the abilities of the children or, or the family. Um, and from that conversation, we created a, a partnership called SNAP, um, Sandwell New Arrivals Partnership. So that was for council services. And so, you know, not just in children's services, but our housing services, welfare, etc. And the voluntary sector in our schools. And um, we, we created a, an approach, a holistic approach to supporting these new arrival families and as a result of that, STEPS was created. So Sandwell Transition Education Partnership Service. Yeah. Get it right. Well, um, that's right. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you look looking at it. Thank you. I'm glad I got it right. Um, it's staff would murder me if I didn't. Um, but, but anyway, um, it's, it's, um, it's a setting. It's a school. It's a setting like a school. Can offer places for up to 75 children aged of uh, school age five to 16. And that was launched in um, in 2017 um, as a pilot, really. And what takes place in the centre is that when when a child, um, when an application, a admission, school admissions application is made, if it can be seen that this family is a new arrival family, then um, within seven days of that application, steps will carry out an assessment. You know, they'll they'll have a look at. Well, first of all, has the family got right to remain and all of those things. Um, but but carry out a baseline assessment. Um, and then, uh, then offer a place in um, the step centre for that child and support them in, first of all, understanding what the school day is like um, and what's needed and to be able to assess their current um, learning abilities and capabilities and to think about what extra support might be needed if any extra support is needed, but also work 
more broadly with the family, um, thinking about the family's needs. So um, offering adult learning, you know, um, um, ESOL for, for improving speaking, writing, listening and reading skills to, to adults. The parenting partnership in Sandwell um, has been able to um, provide support. Um, there's drop-in support for um, health-related issues, etc. We've been able to make sure families know how to register with their GP serv- um, service, how to access benefits if they need to. So it's a, a really holistic way of supporting the family, which is fantastic. And we've had uh, more than 2,000 children attend the centre uh, 64 nationalities. Um, when you go into the centre, it's fantastic because all of those languages as well from all of those nationalities are represented in the centre and it's a really lively place. Um, and lots of, again, thinking about creativity, lots of ways to celebrate diversity and culture in that space as well. Yeah. And, and so then in um, in 2018, um, MHCLG uh, provided a, a two-year funding grant for us through the Strategic Migration Fund so that um, the pilot could could continue. And, you know, when when you look at not just the benefit to children and their families, but, you know, the cost benefit analysis of that, um, you know, the benefit to the public purse is, is really fantastic as well. But, you know, the most important thing is that it gives those children a really great start. It means that when they go to their mainstream school, they already know what to expect. Um, they've had a chance to, to meet staff from the school and the school can have a really good understanding of family circumstances. So so I think it, it's, um, you know, it has been a really innovative programme. Uh, the, yeah. the outcomes have been amazing. And, you know, the, the, the staff um, that work there are great, but, but the most important thing of all has been the feedback from the families and knowing from the families the impact this has had, um, how inclusive it has been um, and how they've benefited from the support has been has been just you know overwhelmingly brilliant yeah so it just makes a huge amount of sense to provide that additional support to new arrival children to give them the best possible chance of being successful in school so really well done i very much enjoyed reading about it so what uh, implementation lessons have you learned from snap and steps so i think i think a couple of things um uh, one would be um to find ways to involve your um, your local community, your 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 families that are using the service, involve them um, in in the creation of the establishment of the service as much as possible as well, because then it will will really deliver the things that are required. And actually, as a result of that learning, um, you know, we've got a lot of volunteers um, from from um, parents that have accessed the service as a result of that, and that's great. Um, I, I think secondly. Um, raise the profile of what you're doing i still don't think we we're good enough at that and that's why getting the the innovation award has been has been so great because it has raised the profile but you know we've 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 known that we've been doing something really special that has had really massive impact but we've sort of kept a bit quiet about it um and we haven't really planned to to tell others about it and share um, our knowledge, our experience, our learning, um, and and so you know, j- just putting ourselves forward to to go for the the award was quite a big step for us. But I think you know we, we've got to learn to do more of that. And across the sector, you know, be be brave enough to put heads up and say, look at this, it's really good. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. I think it's really important that people who are doing 
interesting and successful things that they that they let others know as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'd like to just talk a little bit about the crisis and dealing with that and just how the council and particularly your service have worked with other partners like the NHS and how how has that worked? Has that changed at all? We've had um, a brilliant partnership experience during this time, which has um, been quite extraordinary, actually. So, so at the beginning of the lockdown, the the partners, uh, I, I chaired a meeting with, with partners, a weekly meeting, um, and you know all of the various parts of the NHS, so um, commissioners and providers, our voluntary sector partners, um, education representatives, our children's trust because we have we have a children's trust arrangement in in Sandwell, um, different parts of the local authority services, um, police, and we we had a weekly meeting and there was there was massive commitment from all of the partners to that weekly meeting and essentially what we were doing at that weekly meeting was. Um, sharing information, updating each other, but also um, we created individual business continuity plans and we could look at those across the partnership and see where partners could step into a space where others may have had to move away from a space for a while. Um, And, you know, a really good example of that was, you know, we we were really concerned that um, some of our NHS services would be maybe pulled away from the children's services space and particularly the children's safeguarding um, space into sort of acute services, frontline services. Um, and so conversations about well, what will happen if that is the case um, and how are we going to make sure that um, safeguarding children isn't impacted, that children aren't going to fall through any gaps, um, that, that, that um, there's continuity of support for children. And we were able to um, put plans in place to, to manage that across the system. Um, I mean, as, as it happened, we didn't u- have to use any of those plans, um, w- which is really interesting. Um, but I think it, I think it's given um, the partnership a lot of confidence um, now um, when looking retrospectively at how we worked together through those first sort of few months up to, up to sort of September time. It, it's given us a lot of confidence, I think, in understanding each other's business really grasping the whole system for support and uh, valuing and appreciating each other Um, and that's really really important Um, so so that's been great and actually we've we've then continued to meet sort of every every six weekly just to check in Um, particularly important you know as all children went back to school in September to see what's the impact of that across all of our services and again what do we need to do to support each other to sort of manage demand or, or manage any other pressures? And, you know, particularly for us um, around sort of increases in um, domestic violence and um, emotional health and well-being of children. And so we were able then collaboratively to free up some additional resource to, to put more services into those spaces as well. Yeah. So, you know, in a bizarre way, it's been very beneficial, I think, for, for yeah. our work partners. I think it's really it's really important, and this is from experience of engaging with with other with other councils around around the country that that you try and maintain those connections that have been made with other services. You know, in some areas we've been working alongside groups who are already meeting in the guise of Gold Command or something like that. You know, in terms of the crisis, but actually doing some additional work there just to try and think about the future and how to maintain and lock in the really good bits of partnership working that have 
that have emerged during the crisis. So I, I'm sure you're doing some of that thinking as well. Mm. Yeah, I I think um, just thinking back to your earlier question about um, responding to, to all of this, I mean, those gold meetings, silver meetings, um, you know, the, the council with its health and police colleagues and voluntary sector colleagues, having daily meetings at gold level, um, filtering that through into those other tiers of command in the chain, but then bringing those things to life in the, in the sort of partnership activity that I was just describing have been really, really important. And again, organising services locally in, in a way that everyone can benefit from, I, I think, um, is a really good indicator of partnership maturity. Um, yes. it, it's, um, you know, if, if we thought about it at the beginning, we had some sort of matrix and we, we were testing our partnership <laughs> maturity. I think I think we moved quickly through it, you know, uh, over a period of, of um, six, seven months or so. Yeah. And then just you you mentioned organising services locally there. Did how you organise services locally change at all during the, the pandemic? Did you set up um, community hubs or anything like that? or, or um, Not really. I mean, there were, there were um, so, so lots of things, lots of things changed, um, but, but perhaps not in terms of how we organise the services. Uh, Sandwell, um, has six main towns and, and our services work on a, on a town model um, across those six towns and um, and the partnerships uh, the partnership model is, is well integrated across those six towns as well you know we, we did establish um, a, a whole range of new community resources you know a food bank and um, a whole range of other things like that I mean what we've tried to to do though as quickly as possible is move those additional services that were responding to to the pandemic and the demand in the early days into a sustained operation really and particularly you know moving away from a situation where we were providing uh, residents with things towards a system where local organizations could provide that support um, and the sustainability of those local food banks etc um, for example w- was an important thing to do from from an earlier stage um, so that we're not um, I just we're not creating a dependency model really yeah yeah and on on that note so that idea of transferring power and responsibility to community groups, community organisations. There has been a lot of talk very widely about a shift in power away from the formal public sector to people and communities. Is that is that right? And if it is right, what does that look like in practice in Sandwell? You've already talked a little bit about it there. It's such a big question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think um, power is is such an interesting word um, and, and where does power really sit and um, who has the power at any one time I, I think this is a you know it has to be fluid actually um, and we have to be agile to respond and, and that's one of the things that we've learned from the, the pandemic um, in Sandwell we we have a really vibrant voluntary and community sector it's massive actually and when I first came to Sandwell I, I was overwhelmed by you know, the strength of, of that sector and the, the amazing work that they do. And when I think about our early health work in Sandwell, for example, it's it's our voluntary community sector that leads our early health partnership. 
and all of that work. And, and you know, that, that's a distributed model um, whereby the, the sector can can engage, be involved, influence. Um, so, so I think that's, again, quite innovative and um, and can be quite quite risky and challenging because you know it, it's not a top-down model, but I think it's it's um, a really exciting model. The, the, the challenge always is, I think, that at the end of the day, the, the public services have power because because they make the overarching decisions. That the the key has got to be how we engage with communities well, and particularly with children, and young people how we engage with them uh, and really listen and and really respond so that then that decision making through the power that we have is well informed and it really does respond to what local people want and need um yes. so so you know it, it, it's it's a sort of push pull all of the time um but but working really hard um to be inclusive and to to properly engage not pay lip service hear the difficult things and make a commitment to to respond where you can and be really honest about where you can't. Yeah. That's key to this. I, I think that, that that's really interesting. You you spoke about Sandwell having a, a very vibrant and active voluntary services community. And my, my own anecdotal evidence that I've picked up suggests that areas that have those strong community organisations in place pre-pandemic we're able to respond with greater flexibility and greater speed. And mm-hmm. I just am interested in your your thought on that, because there, there are some areas where there wasn't that that presence of community organizations mm-hmm. and certainly nothing of any of any size. Mm-hmm. And anecdotally, it seems that those areas that didn't have those organizations already in place were more sluggish to respond, perhaps. It'd be a great bit of research, wouldn't it? Actually? Yeah, I, um, I, I think you know what you're positing there is is really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's certainly my experience in Sandwell, and, and I think in the other Black Country local authorities as well, um, where there are strong and vibrant um, voluntary community sector organisations. You know, um, I think there's a real sense of community across the six towns in Sandwell, and there are lots and lots of smaller voluntary and community sector organisations that are there to support very distinct and specific communities as well. You know, one of the things about Sandwell that's so wonderful is the diversity of, it, of its population and you know, all of the organisations that are there to support those specific um, populations. Um, but, but they come together on a sort of towns basis to, to then put that support in place. So I, I, I think that it, this is very different up and down the country, isn't it? I, I, it's been really interesting working in Sandwell for the last two and a bit years because I've always worked in large shire counties um, prior to working in Sandwell and they're very different and you know in a metropolitan borough um, you can work really closely with your voluntary and community sector because it's easier to see them and engage with them um, yeah. across a, a large shire area and particularly to tier you know shire area it's much more difficult to do that so you know, making the connections and and making a response happen becomes more difficult. But I I think like with many things, this is all about the ongoing engagement. And it's the same with schools, actually. And, you know, if if you have an ongoing relationship, you're not reaching out for something new and different. You're reaching out based on 
um, trust and a, a, a partnership that's already in place. Um, and that's something really great to learn, I think, about about some, um, you know, what happens next in terms yeah. of continuing to have those regular relationships. Yes. Um, so I, I want to ask you about the relationship between central government and local government. Obviously, that that's been been quite a topic over the crisis period. So and it, it there has been exposed some tension between local government and, and the role of central government. And where do you think those tensions have been most acute? Um, well, it, it, it's really hard, isn't it? Because we've all been making this up as, as we go along. But I think that, you know, it, it's been quite challenging in, you know, all of the guidance that's been produced, uh, guidance from different departments, sometimes tripping each other up. And, uh, you know, where local decision making um, comes to the fore and when that's determined by um, central government. So, so I think, you know, of course, of course, their attention. So I, I think it's been really interesting, actually, um, to, to see that during this period of time, you know, central government has has needed to rely on local authorities for a number of things, particularly that interface with schools. You know, so across the fragmented school system, um, it, it's been local authorities that that um, you know have had to to fill that yeah. space. My my view is, yeah, there clearly have been tensions, but creating tension can really be wasted energy. Yeah. And and I'm really interested in having the challenging conversations when there are confusions or difficulties or things just don't make sense or one bit of policy doesn't match up with another bit of policy and how do you find your way through it? Um, I'm interested in, in, you know, flagging those things up, having the challenging conversations and then working together to try and find the solutions. I I think that's a better use of our energy. And I have found that, you know, the regular meetings that we've had, the react calls, as they've been called with DfE and Ofsted, you know, where we have flagged things up where we've not been happy or, um, you know, I know I've been quite cantankerous sometimes with some of the DfE colleagues um, and they've had to put up with that. But, um, you know, I, I can also see that things have been taken away and pursued and solutions have come back. And, and that's been really helpful. Um, so, yeah, am I avoiding your question? No, please? no, no. no. <laughs> I, think, I, I think actually what you've what you've said there is really interesting because what most people will be aware of are the uh, you know, national politicians and regional politicians squaring up to one another and making a big scene. But actually, I think what you're describing are a set of local public servants and national public servants trying to work together in the best way possible within their own constraints and own pressures to try and get the job done. And yeah. You know, I think that I just wanted because I, I thought that you might say something like that. And I think it's really interesting because I think what most people are aware of is just what's on the news, which are the politicians. You know, people like you, people like DFE civil servants don't go on the news and talk about their day to day challenges. You know, so I think it's very reassuring and uh, a, probably a better reflection of how the system really works. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and you know, the the key for me in a children's services environment is that we don't make children's lives political in that sense. Um, yeah. but, but what we do instead is, is strive to um, to make sure that um, we do all of the right things. And, you know, sometimes that, that does need really hard discussion. 
um, but a, a sort of shared commitment to try and, and, and find a solution is, you know, the way forward in my view. Yeah. So as as a final question then, what bit of advice would you give to somebody working in the public sector or in public services? So you've mentioned the vibrant voluntary sector in your own area, so it could be in a charity or a social enterprise. Um, what advice would you give them if they want to to try and make a difference? I think, first of all, be, be really true to yourself and and genuine with others, um, because that will will give you the, the confidence to drive forward your ideas and to make an impact. Uh, you know, I think look after yourself. <laughs> you know, that's been really important dur- during these last um, few months, hasn't it? And, um, you know, unless you look after yourself, there's, there's no hope in looking after after others. Um, but I think I think the most important thing is is really never losing sight of the child that's at the other end of your decision making and expecting others to do the same. You know, it, that's got to be the approach. If, if you want to have an impact, your impact must never be self-serving. It, it must always be about something that, you know, um, could make a, a child's life better. And if you can see that. Let that be your driver and follow it and let people in to your thinking and decision making around it so that it can be well informed by as many voices as possible, including children's voices. Yeah, no, I think that transparency is is really important. Leslie, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Great. See you soon. Well, I very much hope that Leslie and I will have the opportunity to see each other in person soon, but at the time of recording, we're still in a national lockdown. Before we started recording, Leslie admitted that the last year has been exhausting for her and her team, but she very much understands the need to share experiences with others, so I'm very grateful for her for taking the time to record this podcast. The bits that really stood out for me was the innovation around newly arrived children, which just makes so much sense. Leslie's views on the relationship between central government and local government, and this is my reflection, but just how the grandstanding of politicians can sometimes overshadow the genuine efforts which are being made by public servants in both central and local government to work effectively together. And the final point that stood out for me was that need for an area to have a really strong voluntary and community sector that can act almost as the bridge between the public sector and communities. And I think that's really important to give an area resilience. So thank you very much for listening and please do remember to register on the website to never miss a future episode.